So let me, I'm just gonna share my notes with you. <clears throat> Given some of the things that have been coming up, including in my own life this week, I've had some opportunity to reflect on practicing the Dhamma, practicing the path in crisis. And I, I have four questions here at the top. Can everybody see the screen? Can you see the notes okay? Good. <clears throat> you know, what does practice look like when we're in crisis? Because one of the first things that people might ask or say to me when they talk about crisis and how they're feeling is, I can't meditate. So I'm gonna talk about that a little bit. How can we maintain ourselves going through it? How can we practice or how can the practice help us? And how can we use the opportunity of crisis for awakening? So in case you don't know, um, on Sunday night, I got a phone call from my daughter who lives about an hour from me. And my 13 year old granddaughter was on her way to the emergency room. And um, of course they didn't know what was wrong, but she had vomited something that looked like coffee grounds, which had a little bit of blood in it. And um, that is a very um, important sign to get yourself to the ER right away. Okay. Um, I'm getting some technical support here, so ignore that. <laughs> ignore my um, hesitations. <laughs> so um, I told, I asked my daughter if she wanted me to come, and and uh, since my son-in-law was taking my granddaughter to the hospital, my daughter was staying at home with my grandson. She said, um, "Thank you. I'll let you know once I know more about what's happening." And so at 441, which in these times exactly don't matter, but they were on my phone, so I thought I'd include them. Uh, my daughter called back and they had found that it was a ruptured appendix. And they called and they brought an ambulance. She was in an ambulance going to Stanford Children's Hospital where they could operate on her um, more. Um, they got more experience over there with, with young, with, with kids. And so that was happening and my daughter wanted to be there, of course. So I got in the car and went up um, to be there when my grandson woke up in the morning. And, um, you know, it's just helpful to think about uh, because after all the practice, uh, the whole path, um, the, the, um, the aspiration to awaken, it all, uh, is related to this idea of how much we um, cling <laughs> and recognizing that we can be present with whatever is happening in a way that um, really helps. Um, hold on just a second. <clears throat> trying to adjust the, the centering of the notes a little bit. There we go. Okay, so what does practice look like when we're in a crisis? And one of the first things to consider is that what we might experience as a crisis isn't the same for everyone and that it's okay. Um, 
there are some situations, of course, that are going to have a crisis level uh, in in anyone. A war, uh, you know, a tsunami hits your town. Uh, it's, um, but there are other situations where, you know, the situation, depending on the nature of the situation, it might read for us as a crisis or it might not. Um, losing a job, maybe you were ready to give that job up anyway. <laughs> you know, it might not be an issue. Um, you know, moving might be really hard or it might not be. Um, embarrassment could be a crisis depending on its nature of the situation. Re a relationship breakup uh, can be experienced differently depending on the conditions. But whatever it is, even if we think, oh, you know, other people might not react like this, it doesn't matter. Um, when we feel, um, you know, the the impact in a, in a certain way, which I'll talk about more in a second, it's down a little bit lower. Um, <clears throat> it's, we, we are having, we are in um, that kind of crisis experience. That's just the way it is, we work with it. So one of the things that changes over time, of course, with the path is that we might experience some things um, with more ease than we would have in the past, which is important to recognize, to realize that our practice really is helping us uh, in the way in our life. So mindfulness comes in as an opportunity. As soon as something happens, we can be aware of how we're feeling and how we're doing with it. Honoring what, where we're at regardless, like I was just saying. And how do we know we're in crisis? Well, I, I would imagine you all have your own um, clues, you know, the body, the mind, uh, how are they doing? I mean, sometimes there's actual physical shaking or there's, you know, who knows what the body might do in reaction or, agitation or confusion, you know, like how, how able are we to like get our things together and run um, for the, when the fire is coming or whatever, you know, it's like they're, the body's on high alert, the mind might be a little scattered or, uh, you know, just using our mindfulness to be present with it. It's like, oh, because you now we're developing that, that background wisdom aspect of the mind that sees what it is that our body is going through, what it is that the more I think of, and I've said this to you many times, more the more childlike part of the mind is going through. So I kind of um, just when I was writing these notes, it's like mindfulness is the first responder, right? That's really kind of how it is. <laughs> and when mindfulness is there, it brings along wisdom and also kindness. And if we can, you know, take a moment to breathe, to check in, you know, on the mindfulness and making sure the kindness is also there, which is a lot of, you know, really related to what I've just been saying, kind to ourselves kind to the people around us. And then this whole idea of, you know, I know I, 
I ran into this myself. Uh, I know I've probably may have told this story to some of you when my daughter uh, was uh, in her 20s, mid 20s, early 20s. She was in a very bad car accident. She was hit from behind by someone going 30 miles an hour. She was stopped trying to make a left-hand turn hit really hard from behind and pushed into the oncoming traffic and then hit from the front. And the phone call I got was from her roommate who um, said she was able to talk to him and she was on her way to the hospital. So, you know, it's like being present with the feeling as you're responding to this situation and um, during that time, the, that next few days, I wasn't able to sit in meditation. And I told my teacher about it. Um, and she said, of course, <laughs> you know, don't, don't be worried about that. <laughs> you know, um, just allow yourself to practice in whatever way is supportive and that can be um, some other kind of um, meditation, but primarily mindfulness, um, being present with your body and mind and working like, and, and wisdom. So we can talk more about all that. I'd love to hear any of your um, ideas about it too. So um, sometimes even sitting in meditation is not appropriate. So someone was telling me about a crisis they had, and um, it was a, it was a life-threatening disease. And I sh they were, they were in this, in the crisis um, kind of period of this and their partner who was incredibly dedicated to having a two hour a day meditation practice uh, was was about to leave her bedside to go do meditation for two hours. And the response from the one who is, you know, ill is like, really? No, <laughs> I want you to be here with me. Um, so, you know, I mean, just to, just to think about, you know, what, how can we be flexible around our routine, our ideas of what should be done. Um, and, and really doing what we can in the moment, recognizing that practice, practice, the, you know, a lot of times we just think of meditation, but it's so much more than that, you know, and, and to be able to bring the mind to how can I help, um, what is the, the teaching of the Buddha that really is applicable right now? Um, you know, recalling the Dhamma uh, and, and being present. Now, one of the teachings that I'm going to go into right now from the suttas is about what we pay attention to attending to the things that can help help us, help the people around us, and not paying attention to the things that make things worse. 
And it, it's kind of like, you know, these suttas sometimes feel so repetitive and maybe a little bit formulaic. But when we start to put them together with our experiences, they can really come to life. And hopefully we get the Dhamma message at a deeper level. So in the middle length discourses, the second sutta called all the taints or all the defilements has these different, it, the Buddha talks about these different ways that we give up or abandon uh, various kinds of defilements. And one of the ways is that we give up some defilements by seeing, by seeing the truth. And it says there, this is um, Bhante Sujato's translation, I think, the untaught ordinary person. So that's somebody who hasn't met up with the Dhamma. And it goes into a longer uh, description in, uh, I think, Venerable Nyanamali and Venerable Bhikkhubodhi's version. But the untaught ordinary person pays attention to what should not be attended to. These are the things that when attention is paid to them, give rise to unarisen defilements and make arisen defilements grow. The defilements of sensual desire, desire to be reborn and ignorance. So my thought, I mean, my daughter, when she called me and said it was a ruptured appendix, she said, have you ever had experience with anyone who's had a ruptured appendix? And my thought went back to my childhood, I guess it probably was, or young adulthood, when having a ruptured appendix was often fatal. In fact, my thought was my kind of, I don't know, sense through my, what people had talked about back then was you're doomed if your appendix ruptures. There was even a story about the doctor as taking out the person's appendix and it breaks in his hands and the, the, stuff goes into the body again and it's like oh no you know so anyhow that's in my mind and what i said was no i haven't had any experience with it because this is true i haven't i'm not going to tell her that of course and also things change um so you know this is and so then the, the buddhist teaching is this is how they attend improperly and this is this is the 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 scriptural description. Did I exist in the past? Did I not exist in the past? What was I in the past? Was I, how was I in the past? After being what, what did I become in the past? Will I exist in the future? Will I not exist in the future? Will I be in, what will I be in the future? How will I be in the future? After being what, what will I become in the future? Or they are undecided about the present. Thus, am I? Am I not? What am I? How am I? this sentient being, where did it come from? Where will it go? Okay, so those are the examples. In my experience this week, I was thinking, well, my mind could go to a place of thinking about my granddaughter and how wonderful she is and how beautiful it is and she is and how horrible it would be if she were to die now. And how I want to spend time with her and I want her to see, see her grow up and, oh, my poor granddaughter, she must be in terrible pain. And what will happen to my daughter if she dies? My daughter won't be able to take it. And, of course, anytime any kind of hint of this stuff came up in my mind, I said, no, <laughs> no, we're not going there. Um, 
if if the thoughts come around what could happen and we think of it in the light of dhamma it can be really helpful so it's not like i'm trying to shut out the fact that she was in danger and could die from this but it's also and and also reflecting on you know how are any of us set for being with that in a way that is most fruitful and in line with Dhamma. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that Dhamma reflection. In fact, it's so helpful in our practice when we're not in crisis to think over and over again, as the Buddha said, about how everything in this life that we care about will be taken away from us. The more we reflect upon that on a regular basis, the more prepared we are when something happens. And that's a good thing. But to put the mind's attention on what will happen in the future, um, you know, that we don't know how that's going to go, we can become anxious and really um, the defilements grow <laughs> instead of instead of decrease. So when we attend improperly, the Buddha said, in this way, the view arises um, that, you know, in this case, myself exists in an absolute sense. And these other ones that you see there, myself does not exist, etc. And this self is permanent, everlasting, eternal, imperishable, and will last forever and ever. And there's this misconception, this view, that's not true. What's the truth? We're all conditioned phenomena, constantly changing. We sprang up out of conditions and this, um, this definite thing that we think we are is really process, continuing to unfold. And that's true for everyone in our life and everyone in the world and every living being. So the uneducated ordinary person is, is caught up in these views. And the Buddha says, not free from rebirth, old age, death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, sadness, and distress. They're not free from suffering. But then he talks about the noble, the educated noble disciples. So this is the one who's been practicing. This is, this is, you know, the person on the path. And they recognize that um, they have to pay attention to the things that are going to help and not to the things that don't help. So thinking in those ways <clears throat> have delusion behind them. And we want to shift the mind. We know to shift the mind <clears throat> because of our exposure to the Dhamma. So we're paying attention to the things that help um, keep the greed, hatred, delusion, fear um, from arising so much and to <clears throat> help the, um, the when they have arisen to be able to calm that down. And again, 
kindness, not judgment. Oh, if I was a really good practitioner, then I wouldn't be having this terrifying moment. No, this is like the natural stuff that happens in the body and the mind. And then we can come to that with some kindness and compassion. And it's like, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> let's, let's try to look at this from the perspective of Dhamma. And what is that <clears throat> in the sutta? The way the Buddha talks about it is the Four Noble Truths. It's like, yeah, this is suffering. There's suffering here. And, you know, when we, we already know turning towards that feeling, being present with it, understanding it, you know, like how many times does someone pass away and we say it was too soon? It's, it's a, it, it was too soon. Even when they're in their 60s, 70s, 80s, <laughs> we still might feel like it's too soon. We haven't accepted the fact that we can pass away at any time. Anyone we love can pass away at any time. Anyone, any, anything in this world can suffer from deterioration, is suffering from deterioration, and have a noticeable decline at any time, a change. In the suttas, they very um, sort of um, skillfully call it a change comes, you know. <laughs> And so we are with, present with what we're experiencing, and then we see the origin of that suffering. I thought, it would, I thought it would last longer than this. That's, you know, this, I had this view, right? So then when we really can let that unfold and see that in ourselves, see that um, process, the suffering ends it comes to a close, even in just that kind of um, instance, that example. We may have to do it, we'll do it, we will. <laughs> over and over again, look at this truth. And gradually we take it in, knowing that's how things really are. And with our practice, and then of course the path here, leading to the cessation of suffering, and what are we giving up? Identity view, doubt, and the misapprehension of precepts and observances, which means entering the stream. You know, coming to that point where you have no doubt in the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. That um, you have no doubt that this is, this is all processed and there's a beauty in it. And even in its deterioration and we can we can hold it in a in a way that has this boundless love compassion and kindness so this is how these defilements should be given up said the buddha by seeing by seeing the truth so i wanted to give one more example from the suttas this is also in the majjhima nikaya Another way to look at it, <clears throat> number 138, says the untaught ordinary person regards the body, the material form as self. And then when that form changes and becomes otherwise, with that change and becoming otherwise, the person's consciousness is preoccupied with the change, 
of that material form. Agitated mental states born of preoccupation with that change arise and remain obsessing the mind. Because their mind is obsessed, they're anxious, distressed, and concerned. Due to the clinging, they become agitated. This is normal. But through the Dhamma, the well-taught noble disciple, if, we, if we've come to understand that this body is not self, and of course, this isn't just true for our body, it's true for all the bodies of those we love and everyone, then when it changes and becomes otherwise, we are not preoccupied with that change. Sounds like a pretty high practice, no? Yeah, but this is what we're this is what we're practicing. This is what we're doing. This is true. And those agitated mental states born of preoccupation do not arise or remain in the mind. And like I said, when they do arise, we can be present with it knowing that that's part of the conditioning of the past. We don't have to hang on to it. We don't have to keep it going. And this is the moment that we have the choice to really see through it and let it fall away. Because the mind is not obsessed, you don't have the anxiety, the distress, the concern. So due to non-clinging, we do not become agitated. And again, if there's some agitation there, it's not like, oh, I'm a bad Buddhist. <laughs> it's like, no, it's like, oh, okay. There is a way through this. There is a way um, to really see the truth in this. So we do not start feeling as self, perception as self, mental activity as self or consciousness as self we can be present with it knowing it's it's impermanent it's passing through we can take steps to let it go so then the question how do we maintain ourselves going through this this current crisis <clears throat> keep coming back to the present moment we can ask ourselves, what's my job right now? So this particular crisis in my life this week was not so heavy for me. Um, it, you know, it's much harder. When my daughter was in the car accident, that was harder, but I had the same mentality 20 years ago. What's my job right now? When I was on the way to the hospital, I didn't know if she would be alive or dead or paralyzed or what would be the case. And I thought, okay, this is what the practice is for. That was what kept coming up in my mind. And when I, you know, and I, okay, I'm going to have a different kind of job if she is alive, if she is dead, if she is paralyzed. What is that job? Or whatever else might be the case. And you breathe and make sure you eat and make sure you sleep and make sure you get exercise every day, no matter how horrible it feels. And 
if things are really real, when things are really hard, we can just tell ourselves, I just have to get through this next hour, or I just have to get through this next 10 minutes, whatever it is, you stay in the present. You pull everything back to the present moment. Be with it the way it is right now. And to the degree we're able, we can be present with our feelings as they arise and work with them, like with the noble truths. And sometimes we, we need to just rest, stop. And sometimes skillful distraction is really the way to go. You know, something that gets our mind off the situation we're in just to give the mind a break. And when I say skillful distraction, you know, because, yeah, look at the eight precepts, you know, you're not supposed to watch movies and, you know, whatever, but sometimes it's skillful. You, you do something that eases things up a bit in your mind and you do it with the knowledge that you're doing it for that purpose and you're going to come back to this. It's not going to go away. And be back present with it. You're not just going to like endlessly distract. One time I officiated at a funeral. It was actually the spreading of ashes um, on the San Francisco Bay. And afterwards, the whole family went and I was invited along to have uh, lunch or a meal. Actually, it was before I was a nun. Have a meal <clears throat> at a restaurant and everybody just uh, totally um, drank uh, to like get through this. And I would say that's not skillful distraction. So I wouldn't go there. But if you want to watch, you know, singing in the rain or something, <laughs> do that. You know, like, you know, anyway, you, you kind of get where I'm coming from. <laughs> And it's going to get easier. Whatever the change is, we adapt. We adjust. We have to. And, you know, even when someone we are incredibly connected to passes away and we feel horrible at the time, um, you don't feel that way in 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Or if you do, there's some clinging going on there that needs to be looked at uh, carefully because the mind has the ability to move on to stay with the changes that are occurring and we develop if we're if we're practicing with the dhamma this is the this is the whole point the buddha was was drawn to the holy life because he wanted to find the answer to this suffering that comes with old age sickness and death. That's what caused him to take up the noble search. His discovery found the answer. We're not separate. We think we lose things and, and we lose them in the form that we are attached to, which is totally impermanent and fabricated anyway. But the peace of that stillness 
is the most beautiful, highest happiness. And in that, nothing is lost. So how does the practice help us? The mind is more likely to settle, even when we don't expect it to. Thoughts of the Dhamma arise. Sometimes um, in crisis, the Dhamma can come up extremely strong, um, really supporting us to understand more deeply. We look at a situation differently than we would have before. This is the this constant, as the Buddhist so often in the suttas contrasts the untaught ordinary person with a noble disciple, the one who's on the path, practicing in this very wide variety of ways that help us address whatever is arising. And it's not, it's for that purpose, but it's not only for that purpose, it's for the purpose of awakening. So acceptance comes more quickly and easily, probably, certainly than it would have without the Dhamma. Perhaps the degree of agitation is less, less even in the kind of clenches of the experience. Then it's useful to reflect on that, recognize all of the, all of the progress we make. And of course, developing spiritual friendship, which we do as we connect as in our practice on the path and then reach out and get support and give support. I mean, my son-in-law and my daughter were incredibly grateful that I would just come and take, oh, take care, take care of Lucas, take care of the dog, take care of everything that I could for them. And, you know, it's family and you think, well, that's what family does, but not all family might do that and, and do the same for our friends, our spiritual friends, friends in general, you know, like, can we help each other and then also feel free to reach out? ourselves when things are happening? How can we use this opportunity for awakening? Well, I think it's probably already pretty clear. Noticing all the good that arises in the midst of crisis. You know, the love, the care, the way people help each other when the fire was close here and so many people lost their homes. And so many people reaching out to help give people things they need, help them with food. You get in line at the, the post office got moved because the post office was right on the edge of the fire line here for us. So we had to go, you know, drive for 45 minutes to the post office. And then you're waiting in line um, for your post office line so you could get your mail. And there was this lady walking down the line giving out gift certificates to the local restaurants. <laughs> I mean, helping the local restaurant owners and the people who had lost their, their homes or evacuated. And it's just, oh, so many beautiful things happen. And we can really allow that to encourage our hearts, encourage our faith.
develop confidence and resilience. Uh, once we go through things, we know we can do it. We know we can handle it. And I think in some ways, even for my daughter, you know, I, she, she was talking about how she was feeling. And I said, I, I know, I know. And when she was in that car accident, when my son was 15, he was riding his bike home from school and got hit by a drunk driver, wound up, both my children wound up in Stanford Hospital. So, it's like, you know, and with those separate incidents, and I know what it feels like. And, you know, it's like, we can really be a source of support to others as they go through things that are somewhat similar to what we've also experienced and lived through. Deep reflection into what we're experiencing sets up the causes and conditions for insight to arise, helping us to awaken. Then I took this verse from the Middle Length Discourses 131 called A Single Excellent Night. I recommend reading it. Let not a person revive the past or on the future build his hopes. For the past has been left behind and the future has not been reached. Instead, with insight, let him see each presently arisen state. Let him know that and be sure of it. Invincibly, unshakably, today the effort must be made. Tomorrow, death may come. Who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep him and his hordes away. But one who dwells thus ardently, relentlessly by day, by night. It is he, the peaceful sage has said, who has had a single excellent night. So that's what's been on my mind. And I hope it's useful. I think we'll meditate for 30 minutes. And then we'll have some time to, maybe we'll meditate a little bit less since I talked for a while. And I want to give plenty of time for sharing. So please find a comfortable position. Excuse me. So sometimes even when we're feeling really tired or we're at in um, going through a, a crisis or a challenging time, we might just sit down to meditate and close our eyes and breathe. And we might find that we're really able to sit 
able to be somewhat relaxed. <coughs>
being present with the body and the mind. Caring for them. Inviting deeper relaxation and clarity. A softness. That leads to peace.
welcome those of you who came on after we get started. It's good to see you. Anybody have any thoughts they'd like to share or questions? I'm getting a, a little coaching from the side. <laughs> Just the thought of, of sometimes how we might be tempted to project what we experience or feel onto others and to watch out for that, which is a very good point. Linda Booth. Um, throughout your reflections, I was I was thinking about um, different situations that I've experienced that had more emotion, anxiety involved in it. And, and I would say unequivocally, since I've been a practitioner, I've just, I've noticed um, that those are the times I most appreciate the practice. And it's, it's when I recognize that I have made progress. Um, and, and the things that really trip me up are more the little innocuous things that kind of just go underneath the radar. Um, but generally speaking, um, not, not to say I have no anxiety when, when, when crisis arises, but it doesn't, you know, more and more, it doesn't take too long for me to recognize what's going on and, and really Ideally, what I try to do is to really notice what's happening and how I'm responding to it, and then asking the question, "What's needed?" Um, mm -hmm. And um, it's just been—it's it, been so useful. Um, yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Linda Ward. Thank you. Um, yeah, I found, you know, for whatever reason, for wherever I am in this moment, um, I find reflection particularly helpful and very just sort of cutting to the core. Um, I would just say it's been interesting lately. Um, I have been working a little bit. It, it doesn't matter why, but um with certain, uh, a little bit of anxiousness about the future and um, very aware and very working with it in different ways, hopefully more skillful than not, um, but not perfectly. And um, yeah, it just, it just really sunk in and I found myself very um, 
and I say this just sort of about my response, not anything other, but um, I found myself very, um, you know, sort of poignantly a little bit choked up, but not in a sad way. I don't know how to say. And, um, but yeah, I just, in, in, you know, it's just one of those, as I work with that, I, I feel things like slipping away, slipping away in, in the good way. Right. And um, like falling away. And the thing I just wanted to mention, which is a little bit random, I suppose, but, um, but in that, you know, in that part of the reflection in particular, where, where you said nothing is lost. Like I felt an even more like just another, you know, inch by inch, like, um, you know, falling away. So I know like what I'm describing isn't actually about crisis, but, um, but it's obviously much more like broad than that anyways. And even, even like relative to the suttas that you raised, but just overall, just the, the seeing and the, um, reflection around like what practice is like, which is so much, you know, which is the whole of the Eightfold Path, right? Um, but yeah, just that, it just felt really just very timely for me. And also, like I said, that the reminder, like we had the same things a thousand times and, and like on 992, something else hits differently, right? And, um, you know, like the nothing is lost was just like a level of relief more. So um, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you, Linda. The one thing that comes to my mind as you're talking is, yeah, when we when we're changing our life and our future is definitely uncertain, it's really clear to us. But a lot of the time we think that we've got it all sorted out. You know, we've got this job, we've got this relationship, we've got this living situation or whatever. And and it's still not all sorted. It's, it's all uncertain. And we just have this illusion of security. And that's when it really bites us. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, I thought it was more stable than that. Because we're kind of constantly, you know, scrambling to get things into place so that we can feel more secure. And we're relying on things that are inherently falling apart. And so until we get that, we will not be secure. And when we get that, we're secure no matter what's happening. And that's the, that's the, the big shift. And yeah. And the only other thing I would add relative to that is, um, you know, it's just like, it, it looks at everything you're saying and just, just, just clicks perfectly. And, um, and, and just, it's almost like, it's almost like it changes, a, it takes a big level of uncertainty in some ways to like, uh, this isn't right exactly, but um, like, uh, it's almost like it's easier to stay straddling with like a moderate level of you know, like a pat an apparent moderate level in security. But when that security is like apparent or you know seemingly really high, then it's like somehow that's when like the, the it can just loosen up a little more because like there's there's not even like a, a the same level of like choice about 
like clinging because there's nothing even to pretend to cling. You know, I'm not saying this really well, so I'm going to pause. But um, yeah, that's really that's really good because that is the the this is one way we can make use of those big changes in life. It's like, oh, I mean, I've seen so many people, for example, go through divorce and then really start to like get themselves together (laughs) because now there's a motivation for it. Now there's a real recognizing, hey, I'm wasting my time. I mean, isn't that what midlife crisis is about? <laughs> Have a midlife crisis and get yourself together, you know. <laughs> and like what you're saying is, you know, is true. Like if we've kind of got things in place, we may not be happy, but at least we're sustaining. And we and we don't have the motivation to really like look. What am I doing? And why do I think this life is going to go on forever? And I can just kind of like keep plotting. You know, it's, yeah, we, we, we can start to gain a sense of urgency. The Buddha talked about aging, sickness, and death as heavenly messengers, because that's what gets us going. Yeah. And you can feel even bodily, like the level of relief with each tiny bit of release. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Linda. Neil? Yeah, one thing you said really struck me in that way of, you know, like, oh, yeah, that should be obvious. Why have I never thought of it that way? And that was, um, you said, you know, we, one of the things we look at is this idea of not self. And then you said, and of course, all all the other people in our life are not self or however you said it. I don't remember, but it was like, I don't know. I thought that was, I don't have much to say about that other than it struck me as something worth thinking about a little bit more, especially in terms of, you know, having strong feelings in the midst of a crisis moment. I don't know. I'm not sure what to do with that. It just seemed like a good insight. And I don't know if there's anything more you could say about it. Well, I find it a really useful reflection because we, we can be so attached to people and, and animals, beings, and when when they are changing to use the um i can't think of what that's called (laughs) the polite way or (laughs) the uh, euphemism um when they're changing to remember a couple of things one that they're a conditioned process and that whole conditioned process came from someplace else. It's like the way that the enlightened bhikkhunis talk about losing their children, which, you know, I, in reflection upon um, like what it would be from like for my daughter, if 
if my granddaughter had died through this uh, this experience, which I think 50 years ago is very possible, very, very possible that she would have maybe even more recent than that. But, or if she was in some part of the world where you can't get that kind of medical care, you don't have those intense antibiotics and the, the surgeons and the hospitals and everything. So many people on the planet are living that way. Someone else is probably having the same experience now with a, with a child with a, with a ruptured appendix and no place to go to get that help. And, you know, the, those bhikkhunis at the time of the Buddha, many of them lost children. And they would they talk about that in the in the Terigata in the poems. And Patachara um, was one of the foremost teachers of the of the bhikkhunis, and she talked about you know you you mourn for this child, but this child came from somewhere and is going somewhere else. And you don't know where they came from and you don't know where they're going. But if you know where they came from and you know where they're going, you wouldn't mourn for them. And it's like stepping back and seeing the bigger picture, something I didn't include this morning yet. It's like, this is so important. It's like, you know, these conditioned phenomena that, show up as living beings. We are living beings. We're people, we're human beings, animals. That uh, my, my daughter's dog is so intelligent, so like freaked out about all of this that's happening. Uh, my daughter says she understands everything I say and I swear she's right because <laughs> she's talking to me and the dog is responding in appropriate ways. <laughs> it's really, you know, it's, it's like these living beings, we, on the conventional level, we have, you know, all these feelings and experiences, and we have the ability to make choices to develop on the path. And, you know, it's, it's like, we do care about each other, and we feel loss when these changes occur. And that's normal and natural. And we can reflect upon this whole thing from a further back perspective where we can see they came from somewhere and they're going somewhere. And if I knew all of that, I wouldn't be mourning. And if I, and if I knew all of the conditioning I have, I wouldn't be surprised or feel bad or feel guilt or feel anything about how I feel and what's occurring in my own mind and body, because I would understand, oh, of course you feel that way. Of course you're having that reaction. And so it's good to remember that. Have a lot more compassion and acceptance for ourselves and for others and for the unfolding circumstances that we're, that we're experiencing. Um, you, you just said something that, uh, that resonated, resonated so deeply, and that was 
relying on things that are inherently falling apart. And it, it just, I don't know, it just felt like, oh, that's what I do. And now I feel like I'm just noticing this fear of having lost someone just a few weeks ago. I, I'm noticing this fear of like, I don't, I don't want to get close to anybody. Mm. Again, I feel like, why? that uh, I don't, I don't want to feel this grief. And it feels like I want to avoid it in the future. And I know that I'm already in too deep. I like too many people. I and, uh, and there's, there's no way I, I guess I, I don't, I don't know if it's a question or I'm just expressing that I'm afraid of, of loving. Uh, because of how it ends. There is a way out of that. And it's the, the loving that's bigger than what I want from you in terms of anyone. And it's, a, it's totally understandable to feel the way you're feeling, of course. And step by step, recognizing that we can love without that attachment. Mm -hmm. And it's a way, way more generous love uh, than anything um, we've known before. Um, so it's, it comes through insight and that comes from this ongoing reflection of this inherent falling apart nature of beings so it's it's understandable that that reaction of well i'm just not going to get attached you know but we don't have to wall ourselves off what we can do instead is develop those Brahma Viharas and really love without attachment. And that love is a love for all living beings. And it's not something you can create, but you can cultivate. And like I said, it, it isn't like you just, some of the, <clears throat> Brahma Vihara practices, especially when you start out, feel a little mechanical. But we have to couple it with insight. If we if we bring the wisdom to it, like keep reflecting on that inerrant falling apart. It's all it's impermanent, it's not stable, it's not reliable, it's constantly changing. And then looking at what am I wanting from this relationship? What, what, am I, what am I trying to feed in myself that can never be satisfied by doing this? Because it, it won't be satisfied by other people. We want other people to act the way we want them to act. And we think we're going to feel better because of it. And the truth is we won't. 
because that emptiness inside, that feeling of lack, that's got to be filled by wisdom and understanding, knowing the truth. And when we do that, then we enter relationships without, without requirements from them, except, okay, we want them to keep precepts and stuff. We want to choose the people who are, who are good and wholesome and interested in you know, all those things we talked about, paying attention to the things that should be attended to and not <laughs> the things that aren't. Or, you know, of course, no one's, no one's perfect. And so we're, we got to know we're willing to like have a certain amount of that, um, you know, like disarray, <laughs> how much are we, are we okay with that kind of thing? But we want to enter those relationships, not with, um, with an expectation of satisfying our needs but rather a, a connection that enriches you both and that through that connection, you can both enrich the world. Thank you. Yeah, welcome. Well, it's 10.31 on my clock, so I guess we should probably wrap it up. But, um, yeah, I really appreciate your practice. And we've all had these experiences in one form or another. And so I, I just um, wish for you peace and happiness regardless. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.